0: Welcome to Living in this Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. Welcome everyone, I'm Asher Panjuris and this is the inaugural episode of Living in this Queer Body, the podcast. During the month of May, I will be releasing episodes once a week and you can get a big dose of the podcast that way and then I'll likely move to releasing episodes every other week. If you want to get to know a bit more about me and my intentions with this podcast, visit livinginthisqueerbody.com, where you can listen to episode zero and all future episodes, sign up for my email newsletter, and find out how to work with me. If you want to support the production of this podcast, please visit my Patreon page. There is a link on my website. Where you can pledge a dollar, five dollars, or more a month, and all funds will go towards editing and future transcription costs. And thank you for supporting me in any way you can, it means a lot. So, recently I was on retreat with Tara Brock. And for those of you queers who don't listen to her while you're trying to relax or fall asleep, she is a trauma-informed, attachment-based meditation teacher, psychologist, and author. And she, in so many different ways, asked us to consider what in this moment matters to your heart. This is a confronting line of inquiry when we, or at least I am, so focused on, especially as queerly-bodied people erecting defenses and performing roles. Sometimes we forget to ask ourselves and others, what in this moment matters to your heart? I want to know what your heart longs for, what you long to feel in your body and self right now. So be in touch with me. Let me know via DM or a message on my website. Tell me what matters to you, what stories you long to hear. And finally... Mark your calendars. I am hosting a launch party for this podcast on Saturday, June 8th in Brooklyn. The special guests will be announced soon, and I truly hope many of you will join. You can get all the details um, through my email newsletter and on at living in this queer body on Instagram. You can deliver your hopes and desires for the podcast to me in person and join the developing Living in This Queer Body community. Now, on to the show, where we will hear our guest, Tamara Santabanez, talk about what matters to her right now. Our guest, Tamara Santabanyes is a multimedia artist living and working in Brooklyn. Her work is rooted in subcultural semiotics, exploring the meanings we assign to materials, accessories, and objects. Drawing from the world of fetish, punk, chicanx art, and tattooing, she probes the weight objects hold as symbols and the way in which style-based cultural signifiers function as shorthand for coded communication. Santa Banyas is the founding editor of New York-based independent publishing house Discipline Press, a multimedia venture dedicated to reconnecting popular imagery of counterculture with the narratives and history of those who create it, with a focus on excavating experiences of marginalized people within subculture. As a tattoo artist working at the legendary Save Tattoo, Santa Banya's is widely known for her innovative combination of Chicanex imagery with fetish iconography. I'm so glad you are listening and here is my interview with Tamara. welcome to the show. And um, I, I've been starting with a question um, mm-hmm. for everyone and then we'll kind of go from there. But the question I like to start with is, what did you learn early on in your life about having or being in a body?
1: Wow, that's a, that's a big question to, mm-hmm. to unpack, um, mm-hmm. especially because I've been thinking a lot about My early life and about my childhood, especially lately. And um, and I think my sense of body was really informed by um I was always really advanced in school. So I think from a young age I experienced a sort of disconnect about um between development and like Mm -hmm. milestones and like my actual physical body and how I felt in it. And I think that. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else I I learned from the people around me. I think there was a lot of avoidance of talking about bodies. I grew up in the South, and I grew up. Yeah, I grew up in a place that had abstinence-only education, so there was a lot. There was not. I would I would say not a lot of open discussion about bodies in a constructive and healthy or even open-ended way. It was very closed closed ended and very, very finite, the ways that we feel allowed to talk about bodies, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that probably, I mean, I I can relate to a certain extent having grown up, and I will probably talk about this often on this podcast because it really shaped how I related to the idea of having a body was that I grew up in an extremely Catholic environment. And so, Mm. um, in a Southern state. And so, you know, it's as, it's a similar, I kind of feel of how do you even know that you have this thing or how to relate to this thing? If it's never really acknowledged or only acknowledged as something that like, I don't know, could be a problem or could be a, um, get you into trouble somehow, or I I don't know, you know, I don't know what you're with it, but, um, I feel like from the, a kind of abstinence perspective, it really becomes almost like dangerous. Um, Yeah.
1: The body becomes a thing to fear, Yeah, um, in a way, or that could be weaponized. Like other people's bodies could be weaponized against you. Or, um, I think that, What else? I mean, I remember my mom, when I was really young, one time um, I got bitten by a tick and I was crying because it was so scary as a kid to have this, you know, little alien spider that wouldn't, you couldn't get off. And I remember my mom telling me that you shouldn't cry unless you're physically hurt because it's really confusing for your body to have tears coming out of it if you're not injured or something like that, something like that. That was so I was so impressionable at that age, and that really stuck with me um and I've been thinking back to that a lot and but also when I was a kid i i I wasn't a kid that was very active, so I didn't really get hurt like I didn't injure my body very often, but I didn't really do any kind of sports or anything that made me feel like I was using my body constructively, necessarily, but I remember. This is another thing I remember pretty recently that's kind of funny is that I also had whooping cough as a kid, um, which is pretty, pretty rare. And I didn't really think about how that's one of those, it's like a settler, like pioneer (laughs) illness, right? It's kind of like an antiquated illness. Yeah. Um, And I had to be hospitalized and be in this like plastic bubble, like boy in the plastic bubble style Mm -hmm. um, hospital Mm -hmm. stay. And yeah, there's a lot of the so so my my very young childhood was a lot of things like that, mm. um, and so I think maybe there was a sense of your body as something that you needed to transcend or not let hinder you.
0: Yeah, that those those kind of experiences of pain or discomfort or disease are they're they're like disruptive in a way that it's hard to know how to make sense of it if you aren't very familiar with what your body needs, you know, sort of reacting to the problem
1: um, in a way or. Right. Or wondering how to more constructively fold those experiences into your body story rather than yeah. working to just uh, bypass them or forget about them. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you feel like there are things in your, you know, teen or later years that helped ground you in a sense of self or in your body? Um, Like anything that comes to mind around maybe your sexuality or, you know, any of those kinds of experiences?
1: Um, Again, I would say my approach is probably pretty avoidant. And I think that that was really, um, Mm. I think the stage for that was set because I I, I had skipped a grade when I was in early schooling. I went from being in the first grade to being in the third grade. So um, my birthday was near the end of the scholastic year and I was two years younger than everyone in my grades. So particularly during the middle school years, that really set me apart from my peers. And everyone at that time was going through all these really intense hormonal and, and bodily changes and mm-hmm. developing these perspectives and kind of like, i don't know your bodies are just whiling out in a lot of ways yeah. and um and i wasn't there you know i was a child and i think that that was you know seeing my my peers go through that made me feel both afraid of that and both like i also like i wanted to be there with them you know, mm-hmm. experiencing it alongside them i mean mm-hmm. you know i don't think i started really going through puberty until i was a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then going to college, you know, I went to college when I had just turned 17 and I remember getting hips and breasts and things like that and really being concerned that, I don't know, I thought I was gaining the freshman 15 or something at that age. I thought that it was some sort of like indicator of like an unhealthy college lifestyle rather than just a normal fact of bodily growth and evolution Um, and that was, so that was, there was just a lot of confusion around that, I think. Yeah. Um, and not a lot of sense of how to, um, yeah, how to, how to let that process happen organically or in a way that felt positive. Mm -hmm. Um, especially because I mean, late high school and early college are times that a lot of people are experimenting sexually or starting to have these first sexual experiences. And I felt really afraid of that and really Mm. had a sense that I wasn't ready for that. My home perspective on that was for sure very fearful um, around female sexuality in that my, you know, I think my mom just had this fear that we were going to get pregnant (laughs) and drop out of high school. um, And she would really work to try to keep that from happening in whatever Mm -hmm. way she she could. Um, And so, yeah, there was a lot of restrictions around you know, where I could go, who could come over. And the, for the funny thing I think was that I was, I was very straight edge the whole time that I was in high school too. Mm -hmm. Um, I've still never really done any drugs or even smoked weed or anything like that. And (laughs) there was a few, I think I was really good. And like maybe, maybe part of that was fear, fear fear-based, but also like a lot about anger towards, um, different kinds of socializing that I saw happening in my town. And I think that um, I, yeah, I remember my, my mom, like sometimes thinking that I was high and being like, have you been doing drugs? And I was like, I've never done a drug. Like I'm so sober. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and so and so maybe that also contributed to this sort of sense of like, what's happening on the outside or like a perception of what's happening on the outside. Yeah. is not what's happening on the inside. It's not, it, it's not related to... Um, or, you know, maybe this, this sense of a sort of like teenage acting out and what's normal for teenagers to be doing to the point that it's assumed I must be doing them was just not the truth of what I was doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was because I had made really specific choices and that wasn't really being affirmed or even seen. And I think what started to make me feel affirmed was having, just making different choices about aesthetics and presentation. Um, So whether that was dyeing my hair or getting piercings or making my own clothes or eventually getting tattooed, I think that that was a really important point to begin to lay claim to my own body or, or Mm -hmm. insist on a communication about it um, Mm -hmm. or insistence on being seen. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Just hearing you talk about that makes me think about, you know, the, from what I understand about you know the work you've been doing for quite a long time has been really focused on this idea of like subcultural you know focus on subcultural groups and identities and the whole thrust of that in some ways to my mind is you know what you see is not what actually exists you know like just thinking about these different intersections of identity like women and queer people in tattooing or you know I don't know if you can speak a little bit about that, that kind of feeling of really wanting to expose the complexity in some ways of, of these various communities that you, or identities that you've inhabited.
1: Right. I think the first word that comes to mind is, is insistence, right? Is that we, a lot of us who do, I mean, I would say the majority of people I know are very complex humans and really complex individuals and and, and very multifaceted and that a lot of folks struggle with having that, having that feel seen. Um, And I think that, yeah, a lot of the work that I've been doing is about making people feel heard and making people feel like they have a space to maybe talk about the things that they don't often get to highlight or bring forward. I think that the ways that people are given, funny, I was actually talking with a friend of mine yesterday, she's Venezuelan, and we were talking about just this concept that we should be able to enact all aspects of ourselves at all times. Mm. And in a lot of ways, I think that is a very utopian view. It's something that I aspired to for a long time. And it's something that um, feeling like I couldn't, be all parts of myself at the same time at all times felt extremely oppressive to me, and I really, really hated that. Um, mm. But I've come to a different relationship with that more recently. I mm. think that even though it, it's important to talk about the structural forces that keep us from being multi- multifaceted in the ways that we want to be and sort of deviating from the roles that are assigned to us or, or projected upon us, I think that we also, in some ways, develop. This really special ability of shape shifting is the word that I've been using to describe it, and and I have to credit. Um, there's a, a this tattooer Nomi who goes by Lizard Milk on Instagram that is a, a queer POC non-binary tattoo artist, and and we had a conversation about it because I was saying, do you feel like because of the relationship that you're in, or or because of how you present, like people people just default to the most conventional perception of who you are and how does that how does that feel to you and um does it feel bad or or what and um because that happens to me quite a lot and it it did feel really bad to me. And um they yeah they said something really poignant and beautiful about having this framing it as having the ability to shape shift and thinking about what you can do in that ability. Um, Which which in some in some ways I mean that could just be a nicer way to say code switching. (laughs) <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. and co- you know, having to code switch is not a good thing. But choosing to code choosing. switch when it benefits you can can be an empowering thing, I mm. think. And you know, depending on the circumstances, obviously. So yeah, I've been trying to think about the ways that people can advocate for themselves differently by presenting themselves slightly differently, or yeah, yeah. I guess what the what the concept of this one true true unified self might look like, how would that exist in the world? Would that feel like the ultimate liberation or or mm-hmm. would it not? I don't really have the answers to that. But I think that as long as we can, we can make incremental progress towards having spaces where we can enact each part of ourselves, mm-hmm. that that's an important work to be doing. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I wonder if you would feel comfortable talking about some of those aspects of who you are and where you have found space to enact like to safely and feel in a kind of a choice-based way feel like you can be this part or this part and I, I hear what you're saying about it coming along with compromise or you know some element of like code switching and feeling you know obligated to present a certain way in order to enter into this community or whatever but but for the most part it sounds like you've found some some really grounded spaces where you can really enact these aspects of self
1: right right I think I think for me I've gotten to a point where it's not that I have every aspect of my life or every community uh holding every part of me um but but it is I do feel at a point where if one, you know, if one group of my friends doesn't quite have the vocabulary to talk about something I'm experiencing, I do have somebody in my life that does. And that's that's really gratifying um, mm. and, and really grounding. I think that um, I mean, tattooing was a space like that for me for a long time. When I, you know, when I came into tattooing, I was coming from the context of partic- participating in a lot of kind of male coded subcultures um spaces like punk metal hardcore and really I don't I don't think I really considered the ways in which I was you know assimilating into masculinity or having to uh kind of yeah having to concede to this machismo Mm -hmm. and um And so performing masculinity was really second nature to me at that point. And coming Mm. into a tattoo space didn't feel any different, really, because there was nothing new about the gender dynamics there. So I think coming when I first started working in shops, I had the sense that, and and this was never, of course, never explicitly stated. And I've been being in in a place lately where I want to be. Uh, i don't know kind kind to tattooing, you know I think mm. there's a lot of lines being drawn or like sides being chosen between d i y queer tattooing and more mainstream tattooing that's mm. perceived as as so oppressive or exclusionary and i i w- I want to take the time to acknowledge the things that are really important and were were really welcoming to me and were really supportive to me about tattooing, yeah, you know, even as I was entering you know these all male spaces for the most part, I did have a sense that tattooing was about tattooing. It was not about who you were. It was not about your feelings. It was not about, um, your life story. Mm -hmm. It was about, it was about, you know, technique. It was about craft. It was about tradition. And there didn't feel like there was a lot of space for me to bring my self into the work. I think that's for a lot of reasons, both more, you know, perceived ethereal atmosphere and also for practical reasons like if you're looking at historic flash like what are you looking at whose designs are you copying what lineage are you are you continuing in Mm -hmm. um and so when yeah I think I just had the sense that I had to kind of like check myself at the door Mm. and it's not necessarily that I felt like my coworkers would react with hostility if I was out as queer in, in any way. It was more that I just had a sense that that's just, this just isn't the place for it. I'm just here to work and I'm here to be a technician. And I'm here in, in a lot of ways to be of service and to be, just be quiet and be learning and taking it in. So after moving to the shop that I'm at now, I not only had had more, more space to think about what, um, what kind of tattoos I wanted to be doing I mean, that that actually, just from a practical perspective, made me think about what what served me the best in my style and the evolution of my tattooing aesthetic has been drawing from myself and mm. drawing from my, my personal experience, my personal knowledge base. Like the things I see in my communities and in my daily life, I think has, has been what has served to set me apart or help me find a distinctive voice. And so in pursuing a style in a lot of ways, I think I was able to reconnect with me, myself, my, my identity and how, how that could exist in a tattoo space, how I could be Mm -hmm. showing up for that in a tattoo space, how I could be representing that in a way that I'm, I'm happy that it happened that way, because I think it felt more natural. You know, it didn't feel like I was insisting on inclusion in a way that might have been met differently Mm -hmm. it felt like a really gentle um a gentle movement in that direction Mm
0: -hmm. no it makes a lot of sense can you say a little bit about how that looks now you know I mean like what does it look like to feel as if you've been able to achieve that that sense of your style, your style is something that is informed by your life experience and is impacting other people. I mean, the, the process of, of tattooing in a shop and tattooing people is really intimate and it's, you know, kind of there's blood and there's bodies and there's stories and feelings and grief and excitement and all sorts of things. And I just wonder, you know, for you, what what it's like to kind of be bearing witness to that process, but doing it from, it sounds like you're doing it from a position of feeling like maybe more of yourself can exist, you know, in that space. I imagine that has something to do with the fact that, you know, from what I understand, you are tattooing people that are somehow like-minded in some way or another, right? You know, maybe you could say just a little bit about like what doing that for a living feels like.
1: Right. Again, again, that's been a slow process. It's been really a Mm. years long, long process. I mean, to, to describe to you a little bit, I I started tattooing about 10 years ago and I've been working in shops for nine. So Mm -hmm. the shop that I came into, um, just to give you a sense of, I, I think it's changed quite a lot in that time for people who are getting into tattooing now, but The sort of trajectory of how you would tattoo and how your career would evolve at that time. I mean, this was before Instagram. So, was that you would either apprentice at a shop or get into a shop? You would put in as many hours as were humanly possible, tattooing every kind of tattoo, tattooing every kind of person, Um, really just not saying no to any work. And just trying to get as much, as many hours and as much experience under your belt as you could. Um, That was also a way to develop a clientele because, you know, maybe somebody walks in, they get a tattoo from you, they have a good experience and they want to come back to you or they refer their friend. Um, That was, so, so doing walk-ins was sort of the primary way that you would get, gain experience and get clientele. And then the idea was that you would do enough of that, that you would sort of, the balance would start to shift between walk-ins and and appointments and people would come to you more, um, for appointments and, and for custom work and like you could slowly build towards doing only custom work. Mm -hmm. So the shop that I worked in was extremely busy and I was able to get a lot of experience really quickly. And because I was one of the people who most liked doing black and gray tattooing there, I was getting a lot of that kind of work. And so after yeah. So just before I, it was four years of being there before I went, moved over to save where I am now. And, um, in those, by the end of those four years, I had really phased out a lot of, a lot of walk-ins and was doing mostly appointments. And so when I moved to saved, I moved to being strictly appointment only, mm-hmm. which was a, sort of a nerve nerve wracking shift because you never know you maybe have three appointments worth three three months worth of appointments booked out for yourself but who knows if that's going to be steady or not. Mm -hmm. And tattooing is very susceptible to seasonal shifts and all kinds of all kinds of things. But at the time that felt really exciting to me that after four years I was able to be appointment only and do all, all custom work. So um but the other thing is that you know especially as alongside the rise of Instagram again, with, with the perception that tattooing was really about how you could tattoo, you know, it wasn't about who you were. It was about how you tattooed Mm -hmm. and kind of alongside that I think was the ways that you would market yourself or the ways that you would represent yourself through social Mm -hmm. media. So I really had the sense that if you were a real tattooer or you were, you were really serious about your craft, you wouldn't have, even have any photos of yourself. You'd only be showing your work and mm-hmm. you would be removing yourself from the equation, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Um, that I think is hopefully really, really different now. I mean, I think that I find that pretty limiting and I find it really gendered. But mm-hmm. I also think that, yeah, I think that um, that's such a small part of who you are, right? Mm-hmm. The work that you make. And I found that the more I was able to share about myself, whether that was a book that I was reading or reference material that I was looking at, or mm-hmm. what art I was looking at at the museum on my day off, that people started to get a more holistic sense of who I was as a person. Mm-hmm. And that was enabling them to make different choices about why they wanted to come to me or what they wanted to get tattooed from me. Um, the The first most exciting thing that I was noticing was that people would come to me with ideas that. I, I hadn't thought of, but were really suited to what I liked. Mm. You know, somebody would say, oh, I know you don't have any flash designs that are like this, but I saw that you, you know, that you're really into this punk band. Would you be into doing something inspired by this punk band? So totally. I saw, you were, I saw you were listening to the record. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that was really cool because it felt, I mean, yeah, it definitely felt affirming. It's like, oh, you, you even noticed that I posted that? Wow, that's so cool. And you like that too. So mm-hmm. we're connecting. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So that was exciting. And then, um, making my own artwork that I didn't even really intend to be tattoo, tattooable or bleeding into tattooing. People were requesting that. And that was exciting too. Mm -hmm. And I think had a lot in driving the direction of my style. Mm -hmm. Um, so where it's evolved to now, especially as I've been more openly political and shared, I think more and more about the other things that I engage in outside of the tattoo shop, Um, people come to me because of that. And there's a lot of, I find that there's a really strong community word of mouth Mm. that I'm able to benefit from, which means a lot to me. My clientele today, I would say is for the most part, um, you know, queer people and and sex workers and people of color and and trans folks. And, um, and I, and I really honor the ways that, that, that type of referral functions differently. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not just yeah, this person was nice to me and they gave me a nice tattoo that i like to look at. It's like, oh, this person understood maybe like a particular, um, need that I have around like my presence in the shop or this person was really careful to, um, you know, use the pronouns that I want to be used or, um, mm-hmm. there's just a whole other set of things to be attuned to, I think when working with different types of clients and, and so Having that having built that community feels good because it feels like I'm doing a good job in mm. uh, in attending to those needs um, I, The thing that's come alongside that, which i'm now i'm now thinking a lot about how to sustain is what I've come to think of as a social work aspect of it and um a, the therapeutic aspects of it. I I shared on on Instagram the other day, I did did a little survey question where I was asking people to tell me why getting tattooed is important to them. And I I really thought I was gonna get a a broad mix of of answers and I and I did to a a point, but I would say the vast majority of people's answers were about self-empowerment and affirming something about themselves or about reclaiming a sense of their bodies. Mm. And I mean, even I, after tattooing people and having those conversations with them day after day was sort of struck by how across the board that mm-hmm. that was what people gravitated towards. And um, and the tattoo shop, I mean, there's a couple things that I think are really special about tattooing um, that are unique and don't necessarily get acknowledged in the ways that they should be. The first is that we are being, we're working with people's bodies. Yeah. And that requires a huge amount of trust. Yes. And I don't know that that aspect of it has been, um, has been named as it should be in, in tattooing. And I think that that's changing, which is really important. I think that that's, that's something to keep at the forefront of our minds as tattoo artists. And I think that the other thing is tattooing creates a lot of intimacy very quickly I don't want to say it's a sense of forced intimacy necessarily, but because you are showing up and making yourself so vulnerable and we're ideally rising to meet that, Mm -hmm. um, you can find yourself in a lot of the spaces where you're acting as therapists or that you're bearing witness to some really heavy things. Um, because you are often and sometimes unbeknownst to you helping people through something really transformative for them. I mean, I think even at, even at it's like most fun and casual levels, tattooing is about all of those things, yeah. whether you're, whether you have it, have it in your mind or not, you know, whether you're setting out to say, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a piece to like help me move past something traumatic or not. I think tattooing or, or you're saying, you know, I went out to a brunch with my friends and we're going to get something matching just for fun. I think at the end of the day, both of those are still about ownership of your body. And so I think with, uh, the, the things that people trust me with when they get tattooed by me are—it's—it's it's a lot. It's very—I uh, mean, I don't really know the right—the right term for it. I know you're that you're a practicing therapist, so I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but I do feel like a therapist, you know. And yeah, I bet. And, and um, a therapist I who's guess, like
0: inter-interacting with you know, the physicality of people's bodies too. I think a lot gets, I mean, I would imagine a lot gets conveyed to you non-verbally, you know, like that you're, they're telling a story and you're doing this tattoo and it symbolizes something, but it's also you're encountering someone's body and all the like history and potential trauma and all the,
1: all the stories right, that right. kind of are embodied there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you develop a lot in response to that. You I think have to develop a really particular skill set and mm. make yourself, I mean, so, so when I first started tattooing, I was not good at talking to people. I was, I was really insulated in this community bubble at the time and be working in a tattoo shop made me have to, it was really challenging for me to learn how to talk to strangers and make them, make them feel at ease. Mm. And that, but it was something I had to, I had to learn really quickly. I mean, there are real repercussions to somebody not feeling comfortable if they're getting tattooed by you, not only potentially in the long-term of them having a weird experience because they couldn't get a vibe off of you, um, but also if someone doesn't feel comfortable, they are going to, their nervousness is going to be heightened and they could faint or Mm -hmm. get sick, um. So there's real physiological consequences <laughs> right. to not being able to help people to relax. Right, that's a really right. big part of the job. Um, yeah. So learning how to do that was so crucial to to my tattoo practice, mm. and is a really big part of it today, obviously. Um, but as I think about the ways that my skills have developed, my my interpersonal skills, I guess, have developed in response to tattooing and the needs I perceive in my clients. A lot of it is pretty complicated. It's very, it's very multi-layered. Like I did, um, I did a, a, I trained with the anti-violence project. I did their crisis hotline training. Mm-hmm. Maybe this was maybe oh, that was like a year ago. And through that training, I learned so much about how to talk to clients and how to hold space for the things that they wanted to share with me. And I think I did a, I hope that I did an okay job before, but I think I can do a much better and a much different job now. Mm. And it feels a little more intentional that I'm showing up for them. Um, you know, I learned a lot about how to constructively affirm what someone is telling you, how to be a better active listener. Um, the things that are maybe unproductive to say to them, if they're sharing something really, um, personal with you and also about how to hear differently. I think There's a lot of times that someone will be talking to me now and they, I can tell that they think that they're talking really casually, but I can hear a subtext in what they're saying that I'm like, okay, I can hear that. I really need to step up and maybe not directly address what I'm hearing from them, but maybe give them a little bit of affirmation that it sounds Mm -hmm. like they're asking for. So that has made it, I, I think it's made me be better and it's made me be more aware, but it's also made me think and ask myself questions about what what does it mean to be a tattoo artist? I mean, what does it mean to me to be a tattoo artist? Because everyone has a different way of practicing this job. Not everyone is a counselor or, you know, attuned in the way you are. Yeah. 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 But I also wonder how other people people manage that because to a point, we all have to have those abilities, whether or not we're working actively to cultivate them or consciously practicing them. Um, Tattooers have to be, be empaths to a, to a point, you know, we have to be able to intuit. I mean, if you're good at your job, I think you have to be able to intuit whether someone's hesitant about getting tattooed that day, or if someone's nearing the end of their, you know, their ability to sit for that session or right, right. what someone's pain tolerance might be, or what, you know, I have to be able to tell if my client wants to say something about changing the drawing, but doesn't is too nervous to say it, right? There's, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's been times that I've had people come in to get tattooed and I could tell that it wasn't the right day for them to get tattooed and, and and they're never going to say that. And I understand why, but I don't, I never want to put somebody in a position where they feel like they have to get tattooed for my sake. And then you're put, put in the position of having to say like, Hey, you know what? Like I think I think today not, might not be the day. Like, why don't you think about this a little longer? Email me. You, we can set another appointment up anytime, but just like take a little time. You have your whole life to get tattooed. Mm-hmm. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. You can think about this. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, I think I, I love being able to do that. It really, it really is meaningful for me, but it, I'm also, I was realizing if I was doing that type of work alongside the work of tattooing, three times a day with three different people for 10 hours a day total, that takes a huge, huge toll. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what that looks like now. I I really value those exchanges and I don't require them from my clients by any means, Sure, but especially if I don't quite know which role I'm going to be playing that day, sometimes it can be, it can be really exhausting to back to back be finding yourself performing that.
0: The, all of those different roles—that kind of holding, like really holding space for all. The, you're basically holding space for a lot of the different parts of your patient, your patients. I just said your patients, <laughs> my patients, your clients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, holding what their bodies are saying, holding what you know they're. I mean, we haven't really talked about the pain aspect of it, but you know, thinking about, I don't know, the, the whole the whole experience of, you know allowing yourself or actually bringing yourself by choice into a space in which there will be pain that you will experience and that you are also helping helping someone else navigate that maybe for the first time but often probably not but still it's 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 can be unexpectedly painful or bring up different feelings in the body and so I don't know I'm just thinking about I'm thinking about kind of like BDSM kink communities and how there's a there's so much around so much kind of languaging around how to hold space for someone who is consenting to be in pain or you know consenting to undergo something that ultimately is about as you said you know kind of self-authorship and and you know claiming power within their bodies. But I wonder, yeah, like what you're, how you kind of maybe are navigating that now and also how it's, as you said, how it's impacting you. Like what, what are the ways that that's doing that work is, it sounds like it's really fulfilling for you, but also that it's challenging. And
1: yeah absolutely the The kink aspect of it is is an important one as well because a lot of my clients are people I know through kink community or who are attracted to those aspects of my visual art, and that's really exciting for me mm-hmm. i yeah, having an understanding of consent as it relates to b d s m also informs the ways that I approach consent in tattooing because as you said, you're showing up for this consensual pain pain exchange or pain (laughs) ritual. Um, Right, right. My friend friend Doreen Garner is this amazing black tattoo artist who does a lot of work around black visibility and tattooing. And Mm -hmm. she said something recently in an an interview about what it means for different bodies to initiate sort of like a self-wounding, but also a Mm self-healing because, right, of course there's pain in tattooing and you're inflicting this superficial wound, but then there's a healing as a part of that process. And I hadn't really thought about that. Part of it before, and I mm-hmm. really like that she said that. And I think that with, yeah, I think differently about consent or about what what my role is in the tattooing too. It's not I I need to be able to trust my my clients also to communicate with me about about their their boundaries, where they're at, where what they're feeling, you know, what they need, and yeah, actually, I think in some ways I I check in a lot with people when they're getting tattooed and err on the side of like are you okay do you need to call it a day for today what you know and that's, that's my preference for sure but I also understand the ways that through through BDSM understand the ways in which I need to let people communicate that with me rather than insisting that they must not be doing okay. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I like to think of it as being a tattoo doula in a way. It's like I'm helping people usher this experience in for themselves and kind of like coaching them through something that's not always easy, but um, has this really impactful outcome. And this feels very worthwhile in the end and is very fruitful in all these different different avenues of why people show up. I mean, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about it because I've been unpacking I've been unpacking so much especially with I think the tattoo I mean it's important to me to be in a tattoo shop versus a private studio because that first of all that type of creative community is really valuable to me and that sort of forced um I know forced social socialization is important to me because I'm kind of a a loner and value my alone (laughs) time but Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but and and also for safety reasons, right? I I really like being in spaces with other people, but I do think that there's a lot of value in I mean, there's so many there's so many people coming into the tattoo industry now, and sort of this this influx of, of queer and DIY tattooing, which I think is really important. But I my my personal approach or desire is not to reject the institution of tattoo shops in favor of more decentralized spaces. I think trying to unpack the authority that the tattoo shop has had and the ways that it's sort of like monopolized credibility with tattooing is important to, to understand and to dismantle to a point. Um, but I also think it's really important to show people that a tattoo shop is not a bad place. (laughs) I mean, in its most simple terms, you know, you can, I have a lot of clients come to me and they have had weird or bad t- tattoo shop experiences that sometimes came just from the collective atmosphere of the shop or the conversations that were happening around them or any other number of things. And um, I was talking talking with this tattoo artist, Mars Hobrecker, who works out of a private studio and and they said that every every one of their clients that comes to them has a weird story about something that happened to them in a tattoo shop. And and we were saying that I think a lot of the unseen work that we do is also reinstilling a trust in the tattoo industry and for me in tattoo shop spaces and to sort of re-envision what that can can be like or how it can function and to show people that that's not something they inherently have to avoid. And yeah, I think that the tattoo shop occupies this kind of like magical place where it's about being an outsider at times but also about sharing space with other people coming together around this art form or around this experience and especially seeing other people who are like you not only performing tattooing but getting tattooed in a space together I think is is really beautiful and significant and there's something about how that space exists I think that also invites a, a sharing or like a an unburdening maybe is a good word for it. Like, you know, really I have a lot word, of, cli- yeah. yeah, I have a lot of clients that talk to me about things that are going on with them or, or experiences that they've had. And I, I can tell with certainty that they, they don't have other people in their life that they're necessarily talking to about this, or they don't have a therapist that they're talking mm-hmm. to about this. And it makes me, it makes me really reflect on what it is about a tattoo shop that makes people feel safe mm-hmm. and Cause I don't think it's just me, right? Like it's you're not doing a lot of, You're doing a lot of
0: <laughs> hard work though to be a very good tattoo doula. I mean, you're really like, that's, it's amazing. Right. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's a, it's not just specific to you, right?
1: It's not specific to me. It happens all the time. And and yeah. I think that there's something that has to be acknowledged about about that and about mm-hmm. this kind of like magical place that a tattoo shop can be if we give it the space to be that. Totally. I think that's amazing.
0: It sounds like you're really, you know, you're creating, you're helping to create that atmosphere where you are at Saved. And that's, it's, it's really cool. It's very, it's very interesting. It's really interesting to hear about how you are taking part in this process of unburdening. Like there are all these different forms, you know, I'm a therapist, I'm, you know, other people do other things, but, and they're body workers and you're kind of in, in a lot of those different fields as a tattoo artist (laughs) you know what I mean you're like body work and therapeutic work and all of that um yeah it sounds like that comes really really now at this point comes pretty naturally to you in some ways but I wonder also you know something we you know haven't quite gotten the chance to talk about is is sort of the idea of how you care for yourself and how you are, you know, you and I talked about the fact that you deal with chronic illness issues. Um, right. And I'm wondering if that experience, I'm sure it does, but informs how attentive you are to other people, you know, and how careful you are with the vulnerabilities that people are bringing to you.
1: Yeah, this, this actually isn't, isn't, something that I've talked about in detail publicly ever. And it's actually exciting to be able to do that in this context because it does have a lot to do. I mean, I, I think I shared a little bit about it very briefly on social media recently. And um, that was, that was new for me and saying mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people said really nice things and and a lot of people said, I had no idea that you were dealing with this. And partially that's because I, I questioned a lot of what the, what the identity of, of chronic illness or being someone who deals with chronic illness means to me. And is that something that I feel like I can apply to myself or not? And I think, um, I think that I can, because I think ultimately the definition is, you know, do you have to consider your body before you consider other things? Um, which is, is definitely the truth for me. Um, mm. What I deal with in particular is pretty intense stomach problems, um, which happened, they came on pretty quickly when I was maybe two years into tattooing. And the onset of it was at a time when I was working like crazy. And I was dealing with a lot of really traumatic personal stuff. Um, I had just gotten out of an abusive relationship. I was with a new partner who was really wonderful, but was also dealing with addiction. And I was working in this pretty grueling tattoo schedule and living in a storefront where I didn't have a kitchen or a shower. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so that's where I was at. And, um, and I just started throwing up all the time. Mm. And I didn't really know why. And then I would, I would wake up in the middle of the night vomiting. Um, a, a, pretty much everything I ate would make me throw up. And then alongside that, I was experiencing a whole host of other physical ailments. Mm. Um, but that being the most present and at the forefront of it. And yeah, and I went to a lot of doctors and no one could really give me a very good answer about what was happening until I started seeing um, a naturopathic doctor. And working with her, helping get to a, a much healthier place. Um, and since then my health kind of come, you know, those issues kind of come and go in waves and, um, I'll have kind of like a flare up or a resurgence of it. And, and it's looked like a lot of different things, but there's definitely been points where it's gotten, there, there was one point where it was really, really bad. And, um, I missed a lot of work around that time mm. and, was trying to show up as well as I could, but it was really difficult for me. And was also, you know, going weeks only like drinking broth because that was the only thing I could really like keep down. Or mm-hmm. I was, um, yeah, I couldn't like be in a car. I couldn't be on the subway. I couldn't mm-hmm. like. There was because there was like a simultaneous like physical ailment, but also like a really, really intense anxiety around what was going to happen to my body. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because I was working, you know, like. It, at times, like working in a carceral space and not having easy access to a bathroom, or having to like have a door unlocked for me to be able to like get out of a room, also heighten that anxiety. And or being in a tattoo shop to being in the middle of a tattoo, you're with someone else's body. Like, there's not always a like grace you know, like when you, you take a break. When is there a good stopping point? I mean, stuff happened to me. Like, my hair was falling out. My I dropped, like, I'm a pretty petite person as it is, but my weight dropped really dramatically in ways that felt really bad. Mm. And yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty across the board, it was really awful. And I have gone to a place now where I definitely feel more stable and healthy than I have in a long time. But I had a moment. This was maybe, yeah, maybe a year ago, where I was, I was taking in such a huge amount of secondary trauma from the work that I was doing first firstly from tattooing like tattooing full time dealing with all of this from all my clients or hearing all these things from my clients um I was also volunteering on at the crisis hotline at that time I which was like an lgbtq anti-violence hotline um Mm -hmm. I was also working at Rikers Island once a week teaching oh. youth event- offenders there. And I was also compiling a stationary project with artists who were incarcerated. So I was getting like hundreds of letters of people telling me their stories, um, which were, are often really, really painful, you know, and really, um, really sad stories. So around that time, I got really, really ill. Um, <laughs> and that really drove home for me the, con- the connection between trauma and physical illness. Um, and since then, that's something that I've been working to unravel and to get a healthier handle on is Mm. what, and, and in a way I like, I I really value that experience because it showed me, oh, like there's a ceiling, there's, there's a limit, there's a cap of how much of this you can do before you're going to injure yourself or before you might like do irreparable damage to your body. And that's not good for you. It's not good for anybody, especially if you're trying to show up for other people. So that I think has really been at the forefront of my Mm -hmm. mind when I think about the ways in which I can show up for others. Um, Because my natural inclination is to put others before myself because it's important. It's important to me. You know, I care a lot about those people and that's something that feels really good and valuable, but having to be forced to remind myself like, Oh, you actually really do need to cook for yourself. That's going to make you feel the best. Like you actually need to get eight hours, eight hours of sleep. You actually need to make time to go to the gym and exercise. But it's also made me really hyper aware of the things that my body can do. So mm. being able to do things like getting tattooed or exercising, or I recently did play piercing for the first time. My friend pierced me and actually pierced all over my stomach. And it was a really great moment of saying like, oh, this part of my body is strong. You know, like, mm-hmm. even though it's felt like a source of weakness, it actually can do quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm and thinking about like yeah i mean just having a lot of uh questions raised about like how we internalize trauma how we hold it in our bodies how do we release it how do we how do we i don't know find ways to to live with it when we have to mm-hmm. um, which which again brings it back around to the tattooing and and what i know firsthand that means for other people
0: mhm mhm yeah I can really relate to that limit, reaching the limit <laughs> yeah. and having yeah. definitely having gone through my own iteration of reaching limits. And I think it it's, as you described it, it's just what comes to mind is that these things tend to happen, you know, like there are peaks and valleys of it all, right? You know, you're like, you're going through a period right now, it sounds like, where you really are feeling the strength of your body but you're also holding how vulnerable to all of the things that you have been exposed to or, you know, hold how that happens. It's, it's kind of a both and, you know, like you feel strong. And part of the reason you feel strong or the, the piercing experience is because you felt really limited and kind of weakened in a weakened state, you know, Um, or in a vulnerable state or a deeply impacted. I mean, it just sounds like, you know, You have gone through experiences where you've been so psychically and physically impacted by the things around you as an empath, you know. And so, I think that's a really powerful. I've I can relate to that sense of you know what happens when we actually go through an experience like that, or continue to go through iterations of experiences of our like the limits of our physical body or our emotional life, and then being able to kind of hold. A wider range of experience within ourselves, um, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think going back to you know what tattooing can can mean. When I think about you know getting like a silly spur of the moment tattoo, because mm-hmm. I because I, I I definitely tend to get really sentimental and like existential when I talk about tattooing because it does mean all of these things to me and to other people. But I think it's also important to. Yeah, to honor the ways in which tattooing can be irreverent, and the ways in which it can mm-hmm. be like confrontational, and the ways it can be, yes, um, yeah, the ways it can be punk, punk. Of course, like I, I think about the ways that something insignificant can actually be quite significant in in its mediocrity, right? Like, like I think there's a certain when you have experienced quite a lot of pain or illness or disappointment or or sadness i think that there's something about being able to experience something unsatisfying and be relatively unaffected by it that's really profound yeah. like i remember um, going to see a new doctor recently and feeling like i just wanted to try a different person and see what kind of results i would get with them and you know, not really feeling that that connected with them and not really feeling like I wanted to continue working with them and that and that being okay. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, and I was, and I had to really stop and reflect about that and think like, wow, actually I'm in a really good place. If this new doctor not really working for me was fine and I could just let it go. Like I wasn't in a place of desperation, of Mm -hmm. needing to be healed, of like not having any other options. And so going to like, I don't know, this kind of random doctor a couple times was just not a big deal. And I think about tattooing in the same way, right? Or like kink, I think can even sometimes be like that. And if like, if we're in a place that we don't have to look to everything that we do to heal us or to be transformative and can just like experience it as an experience. Yeah. um, There's something about that that's actually quite nice and quite comforting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the kind of, holding
0: things a little bit lighter or thinking about pleasure and, you know, I'm just reading Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism.
1: And oh, um, I'm just reading her. I'm just reading Emergent Strategy. Emergent now, Strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So she, you know, it, it's interesting because she is able to kind of talk about an Emergent Strategy and all of her movement building work. So many difficult things that you know she gives voice to all this you know she has such an eloquent way of talking about really deeply entrenched patterns of you know institutionalized oppression all that and yet here comes pleasure activism and it's it's just this beautiful book based on interviews with all these different people essentially talking about what you just said you know like finding levity, And pleasure in the midst of difficult circumstances or not you know I mean just being able to center that experience periodically in your life um it's a real gift and so thinking about it's interesting just hearing you talk about because I'm thinking about the range of possibilities within even tattooing right you know that there are these like Deeply intense grief tattoos that people get, or these really, like you said, these kind of irreverent tattoos as well, you know. And it, it all, you know, it all goes on maybe the same person's body, right?
1: Right, right. Because we do experience all of yeah. those things. And if you right. think about tattooing as a way of recording our timeline or our personal history, then those are all going to coexist. Yeah,
0: they're all going to coexist. Yeah, totally. I, I can really relate to that. Yeah. So we're, I really appreciate you talking about this, um, because I think, you know, talking about all of this, but talking about something that, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, something that kind of isn't always, it's not visible, you know, a lot of kind of physical somatic suffering is not visible and giving voice to it, I think can be really powerful for other people who are, who are also not visible with their suffering, but doing exactly what we said, which is considering your body first, you know, before you do anything else. And so I really appreciate that. And I want to give you before we end an opportunity to talk about what you're doing now and tell people where they can find you and work with you or look at your work. And I know you have a, a residency happening. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So right now I'm doing a full-time residency for visual arts at the Museum of Arts and Design at Columbus Circle. So I'm there Tuesdays through Saturdays and people are welcome to come and visit me and watch me work and hang out. There's a cool punk exhibit right now and a cool jewelry exhibit that are both up. So it's a really good time to come Mm -hmm. through. And the museum's kind of a hidden gem and they do a lot of really good film, film screenings and things that I would highly suggest folks check out. So I'm there. There's another artist in residence there, each, a different one each day of the week in the studio next to mine. So that's also really cool. They're all really talented people. And I'm also, I am still tattooing, but I'm <laughs> tattooing, you know, nights and weekends style, overtime style, um, just less than I usually do. And what else am I doing? I think that's a good question. It's <laughs> um, a lot. I am, yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm also working on some stuff for Discipline Press, my independent publishing house. Um, it got put a little bit on hold for the first half of the year, but I'm gonna looking towards a new release for the fall with my friend Carlos Jaramillo, who is a photographer doing work um, in and around prisons in Peru. And, yeah, what else? I'm applying to grad school right now. I applied to some other residencies, so... I don't know. It's been a real a real year of open endedness and seeing what is gonna happen next. Yeah, amazing.
0: Yeah, I was looking at Instagram and the stuff you're doing at the residency is really beautiful and interesting. It's like thank you. It's so cool to see to mostly be accustomed to seeing your like your tattoo work and your art and and seeing this other visual art practice. It's
1: really powerful, actually. Thank you. I'm really happy to be able to immerse myself in that and also to be able to share it with people when they come through.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Of course. And Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. It was lovely to talk with you. So thank you. thanks to Tamara for speaking about her life, her body, her work as a tattoo doula, all of it. What a sweet conversation. And I obviously am probably feeling the same as a lot of you that we all want to get tattooed by her soon. Um, Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I am really appreciative to everyone for listening. And you can find me at livinginthisqueerbody.com and subscribe. Give us a five star review. Donate a dollar a month for our Patreon. Do all the things that you can to support this emerging podcast. I really appreciate it. And you can find lots more about Tamara at her Instagram. Uh, It's Tamara Santabanez, and she is, like she said, in residence at the Museum of Art and Design, which is a really cool museum in New York. And you can find out about her publishing press at Discipline Press on Instagram, as well as follow her at Saved Tattoo on Instagram. Thanks so much for joining me and you will hear more from me again soon. Until then, let's do our best to take care of ourselves and each other.